This is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, people. And freelance writer and critic for Rotten Nehru. Hello, I'm sad. Now, this is not the end of Film Fight Club, or anything for that matter. It's only the beginning of this episode, where we are talking about the... This, this introduction wasn't as iconic as the other introduction that the score lent itself to, which was for Apocalypse Now, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. That's right. And there's just been a release, which is continuing with an IMAX release in Melbourne, of Apocalypse Now, the final cut, which is Francis Ford Coppola's latest retinkering with his, arguably his masterpiece. After Apocalypse Now Redux, which was what, 2003? 2001, I believe. I think it, yeah, I think it showed uh, in 2001. But the main point of contention is, damn you, Melbourne, you also get another IMAX cut. We, we, we do get an Wait, IMAX. This movie could be incredible in the IMAX. Some of those images. It's strange to As me. Chris and I have a lot of experience yes. in IMAX. <laughs> yes. We, 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 we've had a good time at IMAX in Melbourne, but I remember watching Apocalypse <laughs> Now as a kid. Um, I watched it 14 years ago last, and I watched it again last night, and it struck me how the, many of the images stayed so strongly in my mind from scene to scene. And what is a three-hour-plus movie? I watched Apocalypse Now, the theatrical version, some years before that, and then watched Redux, and then watched Redux again. However, the final cut is in cinemas now. Yeah. Um, we're going to spoil the film in yeah, this yeah. episode. So if you haven't seen Apocalypse Now, I guess don't listen to this or listen to it later after you do watch it. Um, but... Yeah, the final cut. I haven't seen the Redux, mind you. Okay, I've I've only I've only seen theatrical and the new cut, but um, I can tell you what's in and what's out. The uh, biggest addition in terms of length is the French plantation sequence. That's in um, the Playboy bunnies scene with the, the gang hanging out with play, the Playboy girls is out. Uh, Glenn, when I told him this, was really relieved. Could you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I didn't realize this was a change in the film. I'm glad it is. Um, I should recap, though, quickly for those who might not have seen it, um, what Apocalypse Now is. It is an adaptation by Francis Ford Coppola of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, loosely based on Heart of Darkness, which yeah. many Trans- of us read trans- in high school. Transplanting Joseph, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, not John Steinbeck's, yes, as I incorrectly thought. Yeah, it, it's transplanting the basic trajectory onto Vietnam. And it's set, yes, during the Vietnam War, or as it's referred to in Vietnam, the American War, where Willard, played by Martin Sheen, I'm very keen to discuss this piece of casting later, is given a mission to um, with terminate with extreme prejudice a Colonel Kurtz, um, who, according to his period, one of whom is played by Harrison Ford, has gone nuts and is commanding a small... A force that is operating outside of the bounds of the U.S. military, who are actually quite far up the river to the extent they've actually gone into Cambodian territory. He's clearly lost his mind, we're told. And we the, we follow him as he goes up the river and witnesses firsthand um, the atrocities and the terrors and the horrific events of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Now, so the, this final cut it runs a little bit over three hours. It's about. Uh, 17, it's 17 minutes shorter than the Redux cut where Coppola basically added in a whole bunch of things that were removed in order to make a more streamlined and more accessible film. 
the original theatrical cut ran for two hours and 35 minutes uh, with no credits. Yeah, this one is 183 minutes. Yeah, shorter than the Redux. So um, I had some big issues with the French plantation scene, uh, but Glenn disagrees with me on that. But bef- before we get into that, I'd just like to uh, hear your thoughts on the Playboy bunnies sequence that was removed. Right. Now, to be clear, there are... No, I'm just very intrigued about Playboy bunnies and, yeah. and Glenn talking right. about Playboy bunnies. <laughs> You've only seen the theatrical, is that right? I have, yeah. yeah. Right. So in the theatrical version, I think in every version, there is a sequence... A lot of people's favorite still. There is a sequence where um, they go up the river and there's three playmates who do a show and a bit of a song and you, dance you see the show in yes. in the in all cuts of the film and, and that's all in there yeah. and that's yeah. and that's, that's a great scene because um they like you know it's the reality they and then they end up rushing the barricades and trying to cling onto the helicopter and falling into the water yeah but there's a scene later where it turns out the playmates are stranded and will it agrees to trade Two, back, two barrels of oil so they can basically airlift themselves out of there so the several men on these boats can spend some time with the playmates. And I think the scene was, I think in line with the rest of the film, meant to um, be to a degree disturbing, but it was also meant to be to a degree erotic. And I find, I remember watching it back 50, 14 years ago and watching it now, it's an incredibly discomforting scene because you have these men literally lining up to, to in their terms, you know, it's my turn now. And you have these women who clearly are not at all interested in spending any time with these men and want to talk about one wants to talk about the burr, her birds, another wants to talk about some of the terrible experiences she's had. And all they're interested in is clearly, you know, they're not keen, but they just want to undo their clothes. And it's an incredibly discomforting scene. And um, even and in one of those sequences, um, there's a pretty awful scene where um, uh, a, 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 a body turns up. They didn't realize it was there, and they just see it. And uh, watch where any pretense of "Hey, I'm going to get lucky now" should have absolutely stopped when this event arose. Um, he persists, and it makes it it makes an increasingly discomforting scene to watch. I think I I do believe that Coppola intended this, and along with the rest of the film, to just be a disorientating and just strange, absolutely absurd world. Having said that, it I was think, too far. Yeah, I think it, I think it did. I think. The plantation scene, there's an erotic element to that too. I think that's handled really well. I think it's a very compelling moment, and I think it's, but I don't think some of that same sort of sensation should have been pursued in that earlier scene, which clearly I'm glad to see has been trimmed for God. It's been completely cut, actually. It's not in the film anymore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because what you're telling me now, and that gives me a new perspective on that whole unfolding of the scene, and and I feel actually, isn't that a good thing that you're just come, you know, making you feel uncomfortable because the whole situation is kind of absurd to think about it that you know on one hand yes you have uh these soldiers want some kind of camaraderie in that situation so that's fine but at the same time you are in the situation of war so i guess the meaning of these two things about you know you wanting some kind of relief versus the abject horror of war what he's turning up i think meaning of that is in a way, not disorientating. In, in fact, probably is par for the course for that world. But, right? I, I, but I, I think the distinction is that both scene, both the plantation and the sequence are framed as a reprieve from the atrocities rather than being necessarily exposed to it, whereas um, I think part of it, Coppola did intend to be read as this just continuing just 
nightmare but then he's i think it is still framed as a oh look now we get to spend our own personal time with uh who playboy magazine judged the most beautiful woman of the year but but i feel like it's a reprieve for the characters and they feel it's a reprieve from their own surroundings but not for the audience right for us it's just another act of like where we think it's a reprieve but the well, rug is pulled under us i can't i can't uh side with anyone on this because i haven't seen that scene um okay but i i, I have seen the plantation sequence um Look, just I, I didn't like it. I know Glenn feels differently, but just as an anecdotal experience, watching this new cut, uh, I you could feel people in the audience start to stir and become confused when the uh, plantation scene played out. It's a sequence where the uh, they run across plantation owned by um, a family that's been in, a French family that's lived in Vietnam for a while. Uh, Willard gets invited in for dinner. And a bunch of these old French guys talk about how we own this land and we're not going to leave. And eventually a woman, for some reason, gets interested in him and smokes opium with him and takes off her clothes. Um, I, I'm being uncharitable by maybe by <laughs> phrasing it that way, but I, I really didn't like this sequence. I think it's, again, um, a scene that I think was intended to give us a bit of a reprieve, um, give the characters a reprieve in order to... Uh, maybe avoid the monotony of just uh, escalating madness that the film f uh, travels down and w which um, he cultivated through the streamlining of the theatrical edit. As I understand it, this was quite a controversial decision um, to cut this scene because they'd spent uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on building the plantation. On building the plantation. It was one of the sets that I don't think actually got destroyed in the weather event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to, to just cut it, yeah, to um, a lot of the sets of Apocalypse Now, which was a chaotic, crazy shoot, were damaged in a monsoon. Yeah. But um, I, I think this film, it does slow down the pace. I really like the, the sustained focus in the theatrical cut of the way that it's just more and more and more madness until you break through into something stranger when they reach the Kurtz compound. But the bigger issue for me with the plantation scene is I don't find it that interesting. On paper, it's interesting. I think it's a good idea to bring in the French perspective because American Vietnam War movies usually gloss over how important the French angle is you know to um, the politics of the region and, and the, the origins of this whole conflict so touching on that I think is an, is an interesting idea um, I mean I guess it extends the themes of imperialism in this film of Western culture just be, sort of being imposed onto this Vietnamese landscape um, the, uh, beforehand it's been you know these, these Californian archetypes of of surf and psych rock and drugs but now suddenly it's this old school anachronistic uh, French culture right um, but I, so on paper I think it's interesting I just don't find the stuff that they the argument they have to be that interesting to watch play out um, and I Willard is such a detached character by design that I found it strange for this woman to just suddenly take so much interest in him um, I, I just found that it's beautifully lit. It's a scene, it's yeah. worth looking at. Um, the set's amazing. Th there are benefits to it. I just didn't, I guess, find it interesting enough to justify disrupting the focus of the film. But what did you like about it, Glenn? It's actually one of my favorite sequences in the film um, for several reasons. I'm going to touch on, because it was the last thing you pointed out, and we did refer to it earlier, the erotic aspect of the sequence. I actually did find it convincing. Um, I think 
that you don't often see really central approaches to eroticism and romance in action-driven and war and historical films. Um, usually it takes a film like Portrait of a Lady on Fire to build it over the course of an hour or even an entire film. But here, uh, conversely, I found that the sequence where the men left and Willard got to spend time alone with her um, was well events that we got to understand this relationship. We got to understand what she found compelling about him, what he found compelling about her. Moreover, because he would not have had someone he could relate to in such a way for m- much time. And I think she would have been in a similar position. And the sequence where he did uh, in the bed with the shroud, um, restrained, essential. The filmmaking essential. is lovely. Um, amazing cinematography from Vittorio Storaro. Um, we need to talk about that later. It's just the cinematography throughout is incredible. And yeah. it's also Coppola at the top of his game in terms of the blocking and mm. the framing. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's an interesting scene in and of itself, but to me it was too far removed from the rest of the film. Okay, I partially agree with both of you, so I'll try to give brownie points to both. <laughs> firstly, firstly to Chris, I, I do see the point, the larger point you're trying to make about how this movie is treating eroticism and actually it feels quite devoid of the actual purpose, eventual purpose of escalating madness because the eroticism kind of feels not part of the fabric of the narrative. It feels like it's something that the movie is trying to address in a way because it is, because it is it's part, not of part of the, u- the yeah. flow of all the other scenes that make it into the theatrical but cut. But also I, d- I do understand because, you know, when soldiers are at war and, you know, they need some kind of reprieve and relief, so sexual release and sexual you know, eroticism is part of that experience. I think, But I think the film is not sure how it wants to tie it in in the broader schematic and theme. Of that's how I feel. Yeah. I think I think Coppola is trying with... He's using the kind of journey down the river framework yeah. from Heart of Darkness in order to try and give us a really broad-ranging perspective of different aspects of the Vietnam War. Um, and I, it makes sense to try and broaden the picture. But at the same time bringing it back to Glenn's point of view, and I feel what Coppola is trying to do, but he's not quite successful, is to say that it's not just about a cerebral exercise. It's not just about, you know, uh, madness in the sense of you losing your mind, but you're losing all your senses. Mm -hmm. And I think that erotic scene is very important for that because you get to see both the characters being vulnerable in that moment, which you hardly get to see in the entirety of the film. And certainly not of Willard. Yeah, yeah suddenly um, he's, he's vulnerable And the, and in this the agency that the, w- the woman has in this scene is particularly interesting because you don't usually get to see that from a woman's perspective. Yeah, point of view. She gets to initiate a lot of that. That's true. She's the most prominent female character yeah. in the film. Yeah, that's true. So I, I see Glenn's point of view and I see Chris's, though I do agree with Chris in that it doesn't tie in, but I see the point that you know the film was trying to do about I think Not it's really interesting on paper. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to say, I think, I, I think you, I love the sequence. I love it for the reasons you've said, but I think you actually could have taken the erotic element out of it and the sequence would have still been so much more worthwhile. It is actually one of the minor aspects of why I think the plantation scene works so well. Talking about the factor of escalating madness, madness doesn't just need to be escalating in terms of theatrics or disorientation. It can be in terms of a surreal or absurd world that you get thrown into. I compare this scene to um, another infamous scene in literature, which I really love, which is the Tom Bombadil sequence in The Lord of the Rings. Some People str- strange, languorous... Uh, deviation from the <laughs> thrust of the plot. <laughs> yeah, well, people love hating on the sequence. I really like the Tom Bombadil sequence because Tom Bombadil, not only who is a key figure in the Lord of the Rings universe, but it teaches us a lot about this world. Um, the plaintive focus allows for us to reflect on 
um, this this universe, and we get to know so much more about the characters before they again thrust into this horrible situation. So I like I quite like that pacing, and I feel this taught us as much about this world as any of the other more confronting sequences. Moreover, um, Chris alluded to the focus on uh, what was referred to as what was once known as Indochina in the Western mm. world. Um, it really frustrates. I, I find this era of history fascinating. I studied French what was called French Indochina in, in school. And I am really frustrated that discussions of this are absent from films about the Vietnam conflict, it's not just because much, it's relevant. It's, it's, I think um, Vietnam War films are very much focused on the American psyche, probably because this, this event is considered such a wound in the American psyche that they went into a war that almost everyone agrees it was a mistake and they lost. And they lost. But it's 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 more than that for me. We don't. It's impossible, really, to fully get an idea of the impact and the what and the problem and the problems with in this scene in context the, the the conflict in the first place without discussing that era. And more than any other film I could think of, the discussions at the dinner table where they talk about Dian Ben Phu, where they talk about here's what we did. You had the opportunity to learn from us. You didn't. Here's the mentality we didn't realize about Vietnam. Here's what you didn't realize going in. I haven't seen such a great deconstruction in Western cinema of this issue anywhere else. And that's why I think the scene is really valuable. And while it's referred to in abstract form many other times in the film, I think it really grounds what Coppola um, is pursuing with the entirety of Apocalypse Now. I agree. I mean, especially when you look at a lot of the films that would come after about which seemed to challenge this American idealism, especially about war and the iconography and sort of this uh, tokenism and totemism about American ideals and, you know, God bless America and all these ideas. I think we'd eventually Viet- try to do that. But, you know. Vietnam is the, the place is that damaged that forever for America, isn't yeah. it? But it's, it's impossible to believe in, in like in righteousness in to the same degree. In doing that, I think those sort of movies are coming back now, with like American Sniper and, and, and whatnot, where... You know, the, the idea that well, it's, it's great. They, to never, they never went yeah. away. They never, yeah. they never went fully went away. But the tides in America are sh- yeah. shifting. Yeah. So it's to interesting to see that this is probably the tipping point, or at least a balancing act in, in both senses. It's amazing to watch more generally, as a side note, in terms of how cinema has developed from the 40s and 50s, with a prominent focus on the Second World War to the post Second World War America, to um, the to the Vietnam post Vietnam era. And then you saw a slight change, I think, in the 1990s with the first Gulf War and then the incoming second Gulf War. And then now you've seen a very much a return to the hypercritical um, in, uh, view of American interventionism and conflict, well, uh, fuel let, conflict Let's look at what Apocalypse Now is, which is a completely radical work in terms of war films Yes. Um, prior to that. It's, it's basically a psychedelic vision of Vietnam as an acid trip. Oh, God. You know? So good. Um, it, it's... In, instead of being, I, I know part of Glenn is like but cringing instead, no, because but of that description. No, but it is. It's 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 it you is, know, it's, absolutely it's like psych, psych rock and a constant sense of what the hell yeah. am I looking at? at I, through I like to, a love to wake up with like a of napalm in the morning. Ep- episodic yeah. voyage through, um, through just completely bizarre circumstances that our main character, you know, seems to be like moving through with wide-eyed confusion to some degree, mm. um, and multicolored, strange superimposed images the doors yeah. um, are so beautifully deployed and sparingly deployed in the beginning of the film yeah great effect yeah very much so and it's worth listening to these early albums it's they're probably the best yeah, work they're incredible. still um, in, but it shifted I, I think it matches that shift in the American psyche and in, in film it really I think brought upon 
a difference in the way that um, war was imagined on film. Like uh, to bring it back to Terence Malick, as always, would something like the Thin Red Line have been possible without Apocalypse Now? I don't think so. No, um, no. I think it, it's it's breaking things open and making the the way that war is depicted much more subjective. You know, um, to really ground it in the um, reality being shattered. Yeah, I think to yeah, I think to make, all to make a war film, but never actually focus on the war element of it. Well, it does. It, it, I, I think it, it makes a lot strongly. of. I think it makes a lot of interesting points about the Vietnam War specifically, but it. Um, I, I think maybe what Verratten is saying, I don't know, is like that it's very much focused on like how this impacts upon the psyche yeah, and it's the an experience un- of and it. Yeah, yeah, and the strange uh, reality being shattered, essentially. Um, I think uh, prior to this, war films have generally been much more focused on battle and much more gung-ho. And um, in Apocalypse Now, not th- obviously there'd been anti-war films prior um, but uh, that don't take a gung-ho perspective, but Apocalypse Now is... Um, yeah, so much focused on the bizarre from like the the surfing, um, the the moment of going down river after having just witnessed people's legs being blown off and running upon a Playboy showcase, which I think oh, is, is yeah. such a brilliant way it of is. depicting the um, the craziness of the full the, the American culture suddenly arriving in Vietnam. It is, <laughs> um, it, and also and also just uh, you know you had a whole generation of soldiers would come back after Vietnam with had no idea of what they'd been through and had no vocabulary of explaining that. So I think well, it's important. The Willard character articulates that at the beginning of the film. Yeah, he does. But I want to pick up on something you said. You just refer to it as an anti-war film. I've always seen Apocalypse Now as an anti-war film. But However, that's a subject for debate. I wanted to raise that also. Do we think it is? It's, well, I, I think it is. It's fascinating to me that people have different interpretations of this film. And I grew up in a household. I, I lost family in Vietnam. and So I grew up in a household which was incredibly hypercritical I found people incredibly hypercritical of the war when I saw this and I saw the dehumanizing disorientating effect the war had on these individuals I took it immediately as hey it's an anti-war film I still believe this but not everyone sees it that way and the, I think a lot of it is I don't think the right of the, the Wagner scene is glorifying war in any sense no, but I, I can see how people could go into that and think yeah. oh wow this is glorious We could. We, this is something we want to emulate okay well on the subject of how the um whether this is pro or anti-war, what's interesting about this is the contribution of John Milius, who was the original writer of the film. Um, he Coppola was the producer, and then later on when Coppola decided to direct it because Milius uh, couldn't and didn't want to, um, he did some rewrites in order to change the perspective and make it into more of the kind of um, withdrawn uh, perspective and less gung-ho kind of perspective. John Milius is a really pro-military guy. Um, he, he's the, the man who, who directed Red Dawn, and Conan the Barbarian. Red yes. Dawn. He's Red a, Dawn. What a, the Repub- uh, not even joking, the Republican Convention's favorite movie right. at one point. Yeah. yeah. John Milius um, loves the, he said he loves the idea of the American soldier. And he, he, I think, did want to make essentially a pro-war film, even though he personally thought the Vietnam, going to Vietnam was a mistake. I think he agrees with Kurtz's sentiment that, you know, we should win this now that we're here. Um, Coppola was not pro-war. So that I think that perhaps maybe the reason why there's this ambiguity in Apocalypse Now is because of the, the clashing of these two perspectives. I read an interesting article Milius wrote about Apocalypse Now, and he said that he that Coppola, he was pro-war, Coppola was anti-war, but he thought Coppola was too great an artist to sort of lecture the audience and yeah. make it a movie that just obviously comes down on this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Um, and But I guess the, the result of that is that there are still people who will go in, into it and see it as a film glorifying war. 
But, but I think what's interesting about it is that once removed perspective that the film retains throughout. So it's never actually, it allows you to actually engage with it in a, in a matter about taking both perspectives in whichever way you want to. So I think it is Coppola's mm. probably biggest triumph in that sense that it doesn't try to push one perspective or I the think other. It, I disagree. I think it does try to push perspective. I think it tries to put an, an, push an anti-war perspective. I but do I don't, th- I don't, I don't think, think it's, I don't think it's Coppola. It, I, don't, I don't think it's pushing it. No, though. but I, I think it does, and I don't think it's Coppola. I think you have to look at the two highly, most high-credited actors on this film, and that is Sheen and Duvall in their depictions. Yeah. Now, the Duvall character, he's brilliant. He's brilliant in this. The Duvall character could easily you be could, argued to be just a, a, a way of glorifying the war. And, yeah. Or it could be viewed as some, or in my view, when I, when I saw the Duvall character the first time, I watched it again last night, and I thought, he, they, are, they are ridiculing him. They're putting him up for as a joke, as a, right. as a caricature. I don't However, think so. yeah. I can as just as easily see how people would look at this and think, oh, like this is a guy, we want to be this guy. And just the same with Willard. Willard is, and I really want to get into Martin Sheen's characterization, but he's not a good guy. He does terrible things, but yep. the fact that he is the hero, quote unquote, hero in his front and center, you could people could easily th- take it that we are glorifying him, that we because he has all the hero imagery around him, that what he does is good and therefore it's powerful. But I don't think it's going for that perspective at all, and it's certainly in the way not just the Manchin's personal politics, but the way he um, he does it with such disdain for the environment, not just his own, but clearly Willard's growing disdain for American interventionism in Vietnam. But let's not forget that the movie ends with Willard putting down the sword and, and walking away. Yeah. I think I think Coppola definitely intended it to be a, a, a movie of like going all the way through the madness of war to just becoming over it. Yeah, but, but it also I think it's not just about saying that this is the end point. It is just about the overall experience and saying, you know, what is it for? So eventually, uh, you know, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know that you put yourself through it. And I think will it will it sustain is one p- part of it, which I feel is also mocking uh, the whole idea of why we put soldiers there in the first place. But I don't think Coppola is that, I guess, derivative enough that it's going to just push one perspective over the other. I think it still retains because I think Duvall's characterization is brilliant. Uh, even though it feels like a comic caricature, it's not. The, the Duval. I, I, I think I think it does lead in that direction. I think the film is avowedly anti. I think you, I think you have to search his, for reasons that it's pro-war. I think you have to go out of your way to find reasons well, that it is a pro-war is something film. which actually made me buy into that histrionic kind of you know. Oh man, I want to get back to this, but yeah, on on the uh, there's so much to say about the Duval character. But okay, an interesting. Um, perspective i was reading that baudrillard thought apocalypse now yes did you hear read I, this? I, 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 read, I read i read the chapter in high school and i read excerpts from it last night this is fascinating yeah that he thought that <laughs> sort of simply by bringing all of this special effects and the sheer force of the insane effort of filmmaking that coppola did to the vietnam war and you know depicting something like the, the, this massive uh, show bring of force and destruction to Vietnamese villages or Filipino villages standing in for Vietnamese villages. I want to get into. Yeah, you're making the Vietnam War into a victory. You know, it's it's suddenly, it's not a defeat and something to be ashamed of. It's something you can look at on screen and celebrate now and be in that moment cheering on but Kilgore. He, but he argued more than that. He was arguing that the Vietnam War was a TV event, that Copeland not only create, created the idea and the modern conception of what the Vietnam War is, but more mm. than that, and the incredible meta levels of this, Coppola is in the movie. He's a key yeah, he's camera. He's, he's a He's the camera crew he's, yeah. filming the Vietnam War. And so Baudrillard had it, had it right. I think he's... And this is still one of the defining images of what the Vietnam War is in popular culture as opposed to actual news footage. I mean, Deer yeah. Hunter... 
um, platoon to an extent. But this but really people just is think of the, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, the, the images. I mean, the of the helicopter flying over the sunset. Um, the recurring sound of the rotors going oh, around. Yeah, it's so brilliant. Um, it's Billy Joel uh, deployed it to similar effect, but it's really Coppola who defined it. Hmm. Yes, I, I, I do agree. But also at the same time, I think what's interesting is that the imagery of war becomes something that we sanitize ourselves with, that it becomes something that we experience it, and then we retrospectively fit our ideas about what the actual events might have been. So it's interesting how that can play a part. So we are going to continue our discussion of Apocalypse Now on the podcast. We're really, really keen to get into it. It is one of cinema's great achievements of the past 50 years. Yeah. and We're just so happy that we're happy discussing a movie. We're discussing something good instead of like, uh, so this Cripping was bad up. because it was bad, and here's five more reasons why it was bad. So please do subscribe <laughs> to the podcast and to us, uh, uh, sorry, on Spotify and iTunes on iTunes. Other places. And if you listen to podcasts, just keep on listening. And what we want to bring up is the smartphone FlickFest SF3. They close for entries tomorrow, so you do get your flicks in. They're, and they're in their fifth year. They've got $40,000 worth of... Oh, sorry, sorry, I think we're confusing it. They've got a lot of lot of prizes going on. I'm not sure the exact An dollar amount. Unspecified amount. amount. <laughs> a, lot, a, a lot. They're playing with, at event cinemas. Without your phones, there's still time to make a movie. Yeah, li- literally. Get out your phone and submit it. Well, that's what's great about smartphone filmmaking. It's so accessible that you maybe could make something before tomorrow. Some of the SF3 entries have been made in a, less than a day and have gone on to win awards there. The winner, okay, you don't have 72 hours, but the winner three years back, two years back, made hers in 72 hours. Yes, um, that's right. Just, we, we interviewed her. We did. Ren Thackham, she was, and it, um, review was a great movie. Probably sort of my few favorites from the, fest, the whole festival yeah, run. So 24 hours, the clock is ticking. Yeah. <laughs> so you get on, get on that and we'll be coming at you uh, and if you are around listening in Melbourne we'll be giving some myth coverage in the coming weeks the Melbourne International Film Festival starts today Cha-ching. so yeah a uh, lot of films happening there a lot of a lot of screened at Sydney but a lot of new premieres too we're pretty excited so yeah um, if you and if you it's 18 days so always time to fly down there and catch the movies hey Sean this has been hey Sean this has been Glenn Falkenstein Chris Evans and Virat Nehru. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. And yeah, and subscribe for much more on Apocalypse Now. This is not the end. This is not the end. Movies now. Good bye night. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we are talking all things Apocalypse Now. And we should talk about the main cast. Martin Sheen, not had done some films at the time, Badlands by Bad some Lands. director, I don't remember who. David Lynch. Yep, that's it. That's the one. Yep. This is his debut film, Badlands, as we all know. That said, we've name-dropped both our favourite patron saints of cinema. And this was obviously before Martin Sheen did his best role, which was uh, President Josiah Bartlett in still my favourite television show, The West Wing. Uh, so this was just at Jed Bartlett the early years. However, <laughs> I I have quite some strong reservations about Martin Sheen's performance in this film. Uh, we're going to get into that, but Virat, you... Okay. Uh, Glenn and I, I was just going to say Chris and I, Glenn and I were having this discussion about... Uh, so Glenn thinks Martin Sheen's Martin Sheen. That's right. Martin, Martin Sheen. Not Michael Sheen. Yes. Gosh, I'm having he, a day today. He, he's a, he was an American president. He's done a lot of good movies. Yeah. And so. oh, the the way the one about the Camino Trail a few years back. Uh, really yes. great stuff. Directed by his son. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. Emilio Estevez. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So Martin Sheen uh, was performance was uh, well lukewarm, but I feel Martin Sheen did a very good job, and it's actually the way his character is written, which I had a problem with. I'm not quite sure that once removed thing works in his favor in what he's supposed to do especially if you're having it from his perspective where he's supposed to supposed to he's supposed to show disdain as he goes along Mm. and also become disorientated having that once removed characterization 
makes it really difficult for him to show a range of emotions well because he's constrained within that narrative expectation that he's basically being told you're not supposed to show much emotion but only show this limited one dimensional well idea of growing disdain into I think world. the voiceover does the heavy lifting for his characterization really because it's telling you what he's thinking when and exactly. his performance is really just this sort of wide-eyed quiet guy and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure that was actually a good choice and the more I like in the rewatch especially it's sort of like a sore thing and I'm like do I need a voiceover to tell me exactly what yeah there, there was early on there's a comment on the voiceover track where um he, he says you know uh looking at how Kilgore is fighting this war you know I wondered what they really have against Kurtz because you know there's plenty of violence and uh, murder and insanity to go around here but I I, when that line came on, I thought it was really unnecessary because the fil- uh, that thought was already on my mind. I think, like, to say this guy's insane and then encounter the, the clear madness of a guy who's obsessed with surfing yeah, in exactly. the middle. Um, exactly. Y- I mean, yeah, it's obvious that that you know madness is is. I mean, a lot of the order of the day. Here. A lot of the film just mm. does a really good job of showing non telling, and you didn't really need the voiceover to actually yeah. hammer home the point. I think the voiceover was added just to give the film a sense of momentum because they weren't sure that it worked if with it kind of stop start feeling otherwise i didn't mind the voiceover i think it was needed for sheen's particular characterization sheen is good in terms of the narration my problem is simply that sheen more generally he's a great actor he's not he's never been a good passive actor you look at a show like the west wing where there's such reliance on dialogue and action um even some of his other work the american president i refer to the way all his other films um they're, they're dialogue heavy and he's actively involved here he is very much removed from the action and removed from the experience his character is in, is statedly removed from so much of what is going on and it's, it's fascinating to read about the people who were Coppola initially wanted for the role but couldn't do it because they didn't want to spend so much time away Clint Eastwood passed in it Al Pacino passed in it and you look at Al Pacino as a passive actor one of my favorite sequences in the whole of cinema we were discussing it before the show is the scene in the restaurant in The Godfather with Salotto and the police captain and an amazing shot I have the poster on my wall where you just a slow zoom in on Michael Corleone as he's deciding do I take the step I know I have to the consequences for my life that's amazing passive acting Sheen is great, but when it comes to that sort of um, performance style, and it's required through so much of the film, he's not nearly on the level of many of his contemporaries and certainly the people that Coppola did want the film. I think he's good. I just think he's not as good in these sequences. Actually, actually thinking about it, Pacino in this role almost would have done a disservice to the I think it would have been too over the top. I think you need a degree of remove that I don't think Pacino... You do need a degree of remove. You just be able to sell the emotion through. Pacino can do it. I don't think Sheen can as well. But I think the the placidness of Sheen's portrayal, if anything, if I can use a better word, is actually a good foil to what comes through the film. Yeah, he's he's a foil to it because he's surrounded by... um, Look, what's interesting about this film's uh, perspective on war, I, I like how it shows basically that in a place of such chaos, people basically become just children. There's the line about, you know, this is better than Disneyland. Yeah, it's, Ev- it's, it's basically Lord of the Flies, essentially. Right, Everyone, everyone's just kind of, um, it's just, I, I guess, to cope with the situation, um, everyone's just treating it as a, as a massive joke and, like, rocking around, dancing, doing drugs, and, like... Um, water skiing. Water skiing. Great, I forgot about that scene. Great yeah, yeah, sequence. Yeah, just, just um, you know... Cracking jokes and etc. Um, and Sheen, as you say, is, is the foil to that. It's just this, this guy who's seen too much and uh, you know can't really exist outside of the war. Who he is basically totally humorless. But I know but, but, characterization is just how he sells it. Right. But but it's interesting. Like even if it is, he is bad, 
I think Sheen being deliberately bad or just bad acting in general, if you're saying he can't emote, actually works in the favor of the film. Because I think then you can actually... Because most of the film is such an assault on the senses. Mm. Sheen being this placid, non-emotive persona is actually someone I can hold on to while I'm on this journey. I disagree. Half the film is you have to empathize with him. You have to struggle with him. Is he doing the right thing? Are using these resources to go out as instead of one of the characters to kill one of their own, but good or bad? He knows he has to decide morally whether he's doing the right thing at some point, and you have to be able to relate to him for that to be compelling and engaging and relatable. I don't think, and I think you need an actor who can sell passive emotion better. Uh, I think it's it's mostly around the whole experience of it, and I think as someone watching it, I was like, it's not just. Am I empathizing with Shane? Am I empathizing with basically the experience of what this war is doing to these people? And I think Shane being just plain in his portrayal actually helped me to be like, okay, here's someone I can discount. He's not really doing much in favor or against, which meant that I could really experience the film at a much more different level because the narrative then took hold. And I think it works, especially when you get to the more... I think, you know, as the, I guess, the madness ramps up, you can really take hold of, you know, especially compared with Brando's performance. Oh, God. Which, is, which is a great foil to Sheen just being plastic throughout. Oh, well, look, as we talk about, look, I like Sheen's performance. We can talk about actually bad performances. Let's talk about Marlon Brando's performance. <laughs> yes. um, this is one of the more debated aspects of cinema. Certainly, Francois Coppola was not happy when he turned up on set, reportedly not knowing his lines and um, not physically he, ready he for the t- role. He said that he was going, as part of the condition to the role, he said that he was going to lose a lot of weight, and then he, he turned up fatter than when <laughs> they had met. And it's obvious in the scenes where they actually show his full body, but it's really distracting because Coppola... Uh, pur- purposefully only showed his head or part yeah. of his face they, in shadow. Yeah, put him all in shadow so people wouldn't realise. And it's really bad because the, otherwise the film is so well lit, even in the nighttime sequences, that it's this mm-hmm. faux suspense. I understand why Coppola did it because he didn't want to show Marlon Brando in the state he was in, mm-hmm. but it is a detra- major detraction in the film, as is his entire performance. Um, I like Brando a lot. I like The Wild One. I like Streetcar. Um, he's the he certainly is the defender of Stanley. Um, Godfather, obviously, um, he's not good in this, and it's sh- it shows that he wasn't ready for his lines. Was, um, okay, hot take. Uh, yeah, in the rewatch, especially, I felt the campiness of Brando's portrayal <laughs> kind of amplified the madness for me for some reason. I like I could I could see someone going that camp in that environment, and I can see like oh, you know that he started to take himself way too seriously, mm. and I've, I could see like. Even though he I, I get it that. so badly. I get that. Like, that he's, he's, he's thinking of himself as I am this god. Like yeah, he's become yeah. an archetype as opposed to a person. But like even though it's bad acting, I kind of felt a sincerity in the badness of it where he was just like, oh, look at me and I'm so self-obsessed. Mm. Where I could be like, that is just a logical end point of this madness where you just start believing your own, you know, theological or... You believe in your own myth. Yeah. All right. I, I don't think... This is a film that was going for, or in any sense, called for cabinets. It lends itself and imparts such gravitas and seriousness. And I think the performance you're describing is the performance that, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the actor, the guy who played the cult leader in yes, Mandy. Yes. And, oh, that's, oh, yeah. and th- that's what you're describing, but that's not what this film called for. I know. This film, it, called, it, this film for three hours building up this myth, this man who was supposed to stand head and shoulders with everyone and be the figure from um, Mar- who Marlowe was I revered know, yeah, in Heart yeah. of Darkness, mm. and Brando but, wasn't up for that. But, but okay, in, in the film's defense, that's probably one of the only laugh-out-loud moments that I experienced. I was like, 
oh, so this is it? This is the guy? Can I just say that? The <laughs> <laughs> you know? You know? <laughs> but, oh, you know? So I waited three hours for this. I, I went <laughs> up the so river funny. for this. You know, for me, when, when it, it, it happened, you know, it, especially even in rewatch, I was just like, hey, God. We've been, like, this is the build yeah. up and this is the payoff we get. Had, it's such a different <laughs> style and approach to filmmaking <laughs> and you couldn't even sh- you couldn't even show you would ever see a full shot of Kurtz. Yeah. It's he, really he, distracting. He looked, he looked more like Avatar the last I, I didn't so much <laughs> notice that he that you know we weren't being shown shots of him but um I found the Kurtz section to be a um pretty disappointing. Oh yeah, totally. Um because I think after all the build-up, th- and part of this surely is due to the production madness as things are just being rewritten on the fly. Three years. We should note something about this film. This because of um, production delays and casting issues and the monsoon took three years to film. My favorite anecdote about this is obviously stars Lawrence Fishburne playing a character who pretended that he was younger than he was to get into the army. When Lawrence Fishburne, he lied about his age to get into on the film set. He was 14 when he started the role. By the time the film finished production, he was actually the age of the character, 17, and legally allowed to work on the film right which is great well look um yeah lawrence Lawrence fishman wasn't he yeah he was um in the new final cut release after the credits there's uh, a filmed q a between uh steven soderbergh and coppola from when the final cut premiered at the tribeca film festival and it's actually a really interesting q a um where they go over a lot of the difficulties of making this film and on the subject of the brando stuff it's pretty priceless um to give you if you haven't heard about it Basically, um, yeah, Brando refused to cooperate um, and (laughs) they were left with the trouble of the question of how they work around his body weight. But on top of that, he couldn't agree on a way to play the role. (laughs) Um, So It's funny because like Brando would probably owe so much to Coppola in terms of building Brando's image. Uh, but yeah. Especially like his his return to film. Yeah, let's a, let's not you know. forget this. After the fifties, he yeah. really went off went off film. He wasn't doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, the Godfather, the Godfather put him back in a huge way. Yeah, and yeah. people he was unrecognizable. It was this? Oh wait, Brando. People knew Brando could happen. Now they knew that uh, beyond. It so solidified many of his, his greatness in a, in a way. Yeah. I think Brando in Paris. Yeah, the, the, well, that's but a role no. that immediately no. followed the Godfather, no, and, it right. also, yeah. and it was and he was he was excellent in it. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I, I th- what's interesting is in the Q and A is Coppola is saying that uh, he wasn't really angry and he still respect you know he because he respected Brando too much. I wonder how much of this is you know the softening of time and Brando not being there at the mo anymore. Because I was thinking like this sounds like a royal pain in the yeah, ass. Like you, you, they paid him an absurd amount of money. Um, like so, it was, or he, he yeah. managed to demand a lot of money for different films at this time. Superman, infamously, he got a cut of the profits. It would be like the lowest effort to money ratio yeah it was two weeks of shooting which is why he two weeks of shooting where he didn't cooperate until maybe the last two days <laughs> they didn't film anything wow in those yeah. two weeks of, of shooting it's insane given those sets and i got i got to give it to dennis hopp he carries so many of these sequences he's incredible yeah he's hilarious as the photojournalist playing he's himself excellent in, yeah he's playing, <laughs> he's playing a version of his easy rider character yeah and a, a version of his real life persona as a crazy hippie <laughs> yeah who yeah. seems like he's on speed and and, and he se- he sells <laughs> The figure of Kurtz better than anyone else in the That's film, true. including Brando, because he oh, he yeah. creates the impression of the he madness creates, he surrounding him, yeah. and he that he's the myth. Th- yeah he yeah he creates the myth, and and that he has cultivated this kind of madness and this kind of reverence. Oh, the scene where he's circling so the, the, the 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 um the cage, yeah, and it just there's no effects, there's no music, it's just 
Dennis Hopper saying, this is the guy, he reads poetry and I believe him and I know it's the truth and you've got it too. And at this point, you're so disorientated, um, you go along with it. Yeah. Basically, guys, if if you, you know, poets are the worst. That's that's the takeaway from this one. (laughs) Basically, yeah. (laughs) But but yeah, going back to Brando, I felt that um, here... This it basically wh- everything we see in the film is last minute rewrites. Basically, yeah. some of it, you know, um, some of the original script was maintained, but mostly it was completely changed on the fly, and not just on the fly, but at the very last minute when Brando was finally cooperating. The madness of of how um, Brando treated Coppola here is that, uh, as he explains in the Q and A, Coppola had his life savings invested his in this house, film. His, his car, house, his house, the Godfather profits. Yeah, everything. Because um, this film was a big risk, as we should get into in a bit. Um, everything was on the line. So to have somebody who to do that to somebody that he owed so much to, I would say, is so pretty shameful on Brando's part. But yeah. actually, like Brando was infamous to work with. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's look at the late career Brando, and like you know, yeah. I, oh. I, <laughs> not 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 a lot of great stuff. Exactly. You know, yeah. And yeah. People, um, people don't. What's the. Uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, bad. The, the height of, the height of his laziness. Yeah. Where yeah, he, he just was, did not care. Where he had learnt nothing of the script and had his lines fed to him via an earpiece with a, a, an assistant with yeah. a radio. And what's the terrible... Telling him what to say. And the, it could have been so great. The score, his last film, he just yeah. sits there. Yeah. Uh, it's It doesn't he's really the, say much, do anything. He's become the Johnny Depp post... Uh, well, well, he Johnny was in Depp, with Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp was in um, Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. No, Don Juan. Oh, John, Don Juan? Uh, yeah, right. Don Juan. Don Juan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there were rumors that film. Johnny Depp has started maybe he's learned from the best because <laughs> there was rumors that Johnny Depp has started having his lines fed to him <laughs> that, that by the true. earpiece Jessica Chastain <laughs> did a very big eye roll in one of the interviews when that question was asked and she was like of course you know. right but like early career Brando God, he Amazing, just yeah. blows it away. Oh, He's yeah. ins- you need to you need to do the good work early so you can just be that lazy and still get paid millions of dollars <laughs> later in life. Now, but, um, yeah. I, I, I didn't I didn't mention on the waterfront. Sorry, yeah, obviously amazing. on the waterfront. Yeah. Incredible. But in um, yeah, the, the the issue going back to Apocalypse Now is the the most profound thing, honestly, that comes out of Brando's character is probably the radio bit early in the film where he talks about the snail crawling along the razor blade. Right, like yeah. The, oh, no, no, I, I would, I would give it to the sequence where he's talking about the inoculation of the children, right, and having to hack up all the arms. Apparently, John, John Milius said that was a, a story that a, a real Vietnam vet told to him that really happened. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But but, but, but even <laughs> then, actually, like what what I find yeah. yeah, what I find so discomforting is that the actual narratives and like the horror that comes. Horror. Yeah, the horror, the horror, the horror. The horror, the horror. Seinfeld did an excellent parody of this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, has is nothing compared to the build-up of it. Yeah, know? I agree. The, the build-up is the payoff, actually. The build-up, yeah, the build-up is the film, but I, I still feel like Kurtz needed to be more profound. Yeah. I don't think that maybe between whether it's the campiness of Brando's performance, um, but beyond that. Like at the end of it, what does he really have to say other than we need to surrender our morality most in order to win and be ruthless? But part part of the part it, it's of not that profound after all we've seen because that point was already uh, almost yeah. just made through the action that we saw going down the river that one would if they spent long enough in this environment and tried to conquer it go down that direction. Bunnies just have a bowl of rice every day or less. Right. If, that, if your rice was just R and R, then if R and R was just rice, then you could win. Right, that, <laughs> right, that right. Point, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to, I used to think like that, but on the rewatch last night, what I was thinking was like, 
it kind of adds to the absurdity of it all. Like you know, it's that, just that, Brando, that, that, weird cult leader, who's <laughs> yeah. just nothing. That, 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 you, that you know, that you know, that you kind of feel that oh, it has to be profound, right? And it's not. We like, told it, it's, it's profound. Not, is it, it isn't profound. Yeah. We're told it's profound. That's I true. Know, but, yeah. But it, the part of the absurdity and the surreal aspect of it is like what these people think <laughs> is profound it. is just like oh, he's just another cult leader. It's <laughs> like you know, it's not really that profound. So you know that everyone has kind of lost it to that extent and it's the environment that does it to you mm. where you kind of feel like anybody who's like a trumpish kind of figure is just oh i don't think we compare him to trump i don't think it's uh okay, comparable at all I, Actually, I would have loved if they found a trump figure <laughs> who's just like you know like the, the news, great great victory you know like no like um God, what, what would what would what Trump cuts say? We're not we're not losing the war. <laughs> just like like the, the, the he he would just be like you know like the best war, the best troops. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I'm sorry, no, you, this is absolutely wrong. Um, he he told the Joint Chiefs that no, we're losing the war under these circumstances. Here's the realistic account of what is happening, and they buried the report. Yeah. So he's he's actually I'm I'm gonna give him. So he was Kurt, on the other side of yeah. Kurtz Kurtz in some ways is portrayed as like I think the idea the tragic in this. Well, I think he, he and he in, lost his mind because he tried to do the right thing, and I, over time, I like, think he was I just think ignored. I think it's it, that what Couple is going for is sort of a, a picture of the madness of war. That he's a truth teller, but the truth is unpalatable. Um, and you so, but but the truth. because like you're in a situation where you can't win unless you just become monsters, right? He's te- that because mm. he's gone further into that direction. That now you know um, we need we need to do things our own way because he wants to win that war. Under any circumstances, it's one um, of the it's one of the best, if not the best, film I think that covers the the mentality that surrounded and as the film makes clear, did not surround the approach to Vietnam um, in the lead up to it. I mean, we talked yeah. we were talking before about some of the other great Vietnam films, and um, the Deer Hunter is up there for me. Yeah, I, me too. Re- I really like the Born on the Fourth of July and. Rambo, I know it's a very different type Rambo, of film. The Rambo First Blood is... Yeah. First Blood is great. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really yeah. effective film about PTSD. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, and now I've been thinking, you know, with uh, not that what our version of Apocalypse Now is going to be, but like, you know, with the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war in the next 20-odd years, if that's going to be... Uh, what kind of films are going to come out of that? Yeah, but... um, I liked Hurt Locker a lot. Hurt yeah. Locker was interesting. It wasn't on the level of Apocalypse Now, but it was a great movie. That on the the level of Apocalypse Now, though, so much of it is just, like think about how on fire a couple it was in the seventies. Oh, the yeah. Godfather the one, conversation. the conversation, the conversation, Godfather Part Two. Amazing. Soderbergh made the point in the Q and A like if your previous three films, you know, your films of the seventies, you'd won Best Picture twice and the Palm Door once for the conversation, and then he won the Palm Door again for Apocalypse Now. He was on top of the world in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I, I, I love this. There's, no there's, there's a the great stat original about... Original Bong Joon-ho. Um, I'm sorry, the, the actor who played Frito, that he made five films with all like best picture winners. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? He was in the he was Deer Hunter, Godfather 1 and 2, Conversation, and... He was in Dog Day Afternoon, wasn't he? No. Uh, no, he wasn't in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, he was in... Um, uh, his name. The, guy, the Amazing Boot scene, yeah. I, I would give this slightly over the Deer Hunter... I feel it. They, they take a, a different perspective because what what's the the deer hunter is so traditionalist. The deer hunter is really like an old school widescreen epic. Mm. You know, um, it has a real poetic power and a real weight to it. Whereas this is, I think, like using more experimental film techniques to 
create something more fragmentary and hallucinogenic. And purely um, as a technical hallucinatory, I should say. And purely as a technical achievement, the scale yeah, that we wanted the, to achieve in the Valkyrie sequence, in the, 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 um, the, 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 the trek up the river, I, each of the set yeah, pieces. I really recommend, uh, if you can catch a screening of, of this film in cinema ever, it's, it's really worth doing. The um, Ride of the Valkyries sequence, I, I, um, when I was watching that, I thought this has to be the most incredible depiction of war ever put on screen. There have been, uh, you know, um, thing like people have gone for the sheer technical bravado in films like We Were Soldiers and, and Saving Private Ryan and such later on. And certainly Mel Gibson tried in Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, yeah. Um, but I feel like the editing and, you know, the sheer force of like the cutaways to this incredible um, array of, of weaponry, you know, the boats are coming in and the planes are coming in. Um, the, the Walter Murch, an incredible editor, deserves a lot of um, a lot of credit. He, an editor and a sound designer. On that note, how amazing is the sound design? Oh, the sound film? design is exceptional. I mean, the the, 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 the rotors, just the yeah, rotors, the rotors exactly. Just, yeah, you, you, you hear most of the action before you see it. You know, it's it's precursing. The visuals are almost secondary to almost a lot of the... Mm, but the visuals auditory. have so much force. I know, and if but you I think it's because I think you can just preempt based on the sound. And, mm. and look, one of the great scenes where later in the film where the, the, boat, the driver of the boat dies when the little spears are coming through. And yeah. you, importantly, you can hear them before you can see them. Yeah. It's very disorientating. It's really powerful. There's so many and you know smart what? choices. And you, you hear the the scene with the playmates um, mm. on the on the um, on the helipad before you see it. Mm. Um, the sequence where at the very end, what do they call the asshole of the world? You hear it yeah. before you see it. Yeah. Mm. Just on a on a more meta level, sorry, a more um, macro level of the editing and the structuring of the film. The the I really love the sort of episodic but drifty pace as we just. Um, you know, the way we move from one disorientating event to the other. I re- think it really captures the way that reality doesn't seem stable in this location. You know, you go through the, these misty kind of forests where they encounter the, the tiger, then you're in a playboy, you know, you've just come out of, um, in the, like a broad depiction of war in the air, uh, land, sea, that isn't so much about characters as it is about the overall just perspective of, of the destruction. And then, great really gracefully the perspective just goes more you know right with the characters on the boat that this film does some really incredible things with guiding you along this journey without it feeling jarring it could because it could have easily felt jarring with all the events that are crammed into this perspective i would say nothing is really jarring until you um cuts until cuts (laughs) yeah every scene strangely has place to breathe yeah um, it's insane to watch in what is a film as long which packs just as much in as it does and you're given time to reflect hmm. it's you, you don't often get that in action cinema where the pace is often thought to be required to be relentless what? yeah but what it does is it allows you to say oh i've absorbed i've seen this but at the same time before you're ready to absorb something else it hits you and that does enable and pour and propel that disorientating effect it's it is such a dreamy film should um, we call this an action movie yeah that's what i was thinking the, i'm cinema, it uh, features some incredible action sequences but i wouldn't say no, actually, it's, I, I would, it's 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 a war film not an action it's a war film, film but I'll yeah that. it's not Fair. it's yes. not yeah the the focus is more on the dislocation and the um there is a sense of the escalating sense of madness at being becoming brutalized 
to to the violence um and it the i think the um the setting of, of vietnam is, is more the focus than the action itself like i think the action serves the broader purpose in showing how this landscape is being destroyed that the, the whenever we see the the people of vietnam there's the focus on um for example before the right of the valkyries sequence uh the people you can see it's a vc controlled area but we see um school children um just people going about their days and there's of course this scene where um trigger happy um which yeah. which guy is it is it it's not, uh I have his face in my head, but I'm forgetting the name. The, the, um, is Lawrence Fishburne shoots everyone. Yeah, on the boat where on the, the boat. puppy is. Clean? Is yeah. he clean or is yeah ah, clean? Yeah. Clean is the character's sure. name. Yeah. Um, the the focus is very much on like the placidness of the Vietnamese landscape, having this this incredible lack of morality. Yeah. Life suddenly and, and emerge so from from all combatants because of the craziness of the war. I think yeah, the film is really about the madness of the war, and that's why I like the plantation scene too, because it shows how life, in spite of all this, continues, and the, the whole country didn't just grind halt, mm. and things went on, and when those innocent things try to persist, you saw even unintentionally, or you know, Willard didn't want to stop, mm. and it, and things escalated. Yeah, like if you follow the rules that you've been given. Yeah. You, you uh, potentially disaster strikes. Yeah, and it was so w- w- people and, there. And, and without, war crime was committed. Yeah, people people there basically seem to be, as you see in the bridge sequence, like walking around without any clear direction and losing themselves in the in the process. Um, but no, I w- are you going to finish? I'll let you. Oh, finish I, I your had point. a totally different point. So no, because <laughs> I was just going to bring up what we were discussing earlier about this being a mainstream movie, and I'm still surprised yeah. at the fact that you know. Something like that was made in the seventies, which is yeah. very much within I mean, the constraints of it, mainstream it cinema. As we said before, it was a gamble for Coppola. He didn't have complete studio backing, and he put a lot on the line himself. So this was seen as a risk, but nonetheless, this was accepted as a mainstream release. Yeah. Um, man, times have changed. Oh God, it's yeah. times have changed so like much. Like you know, like this. This is a very experimental film yeah. in terms of the in terms of the filmmaking style. Yeah. Today kind of and feels like apocalypse now, right? Like but bringing bringing experimental formal elements to a high budget war film, you know, the, 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 we're never going to to see that kind of large scale ambition. I think ever again. Oh, I think come like come on, don't we, bag out Hobbs and Shaw. Right. Might surprise you. Uh, you know, we have things like we have we will have things so like divorced from Avatar, reality. much more divorced from reality. Avatar, where you know the the risk is we spent so much money on realistic CGI, but not in terms of the actual shape of the storytelling, and not in terms of making a film that is dark and isn't is unashamedly dark and about going to really brutal places essentially unrelentingly yeah it's an interesting dichotomy today where we are trying to invest more money in technical aspects but the storytelling is becoming safer but not yeah but not in the ways that we might formalist you know in a formalist sense yeah the form the form is going is uh, atrophying more more sort of you know short reverse shot almost it's becoming more more just kind of fixed there's there's less room for experimental filmmaking and because as a film like this you know still I talk about it being experimental, but still satisfying on the level of developing characters and introducing plot. Mm. So uh, it shows that it can be done. It can be done, and it, it, that that can on that level, it can still satisfy the main a mainstream audience. It provides spectacle, um, and it provides the classical conventions of drama, while also 
showing you a different way to tell the story that maybe gets you into a more subjective perspective than a more classical war film could have done. But maybe it's a question of time, you know, where I feel like maybe films things will swing back again. So mechanical, where I think the studio backing allows you a certain space and a certain time to churn out a movie, not even make a movie. You're churning out movies now, not making them as much. It's churning them out as per schedule. And and to in order to satisfy a corporate demand. Yeah, because I think, you know, with releases lined up till 2020 or 2022. But you're not churning movies out. Um, less movies are being made. And I, I, I That's mean, true. churning out in the sense of like, you know, you have your corporate uh, almost, I guess, you know, machine line or a hanging clothes line of movies already scheduled up. Mm. So you have to release them in that order, in that time frame. They have to satisfy the shareholders. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. So that... that Risk-taking is not there but because but you have to do it in that time frame. Well, it is risk-taking because still, okay. orig- original films with uh, are do prove successful occasionally, and they do take risks. Yeah. Um, we talked about The Lion King a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Pocahontas was the big push. Lion King was a completely original story, um, and... They but and it was the minor one that not a lot of the Disney talent went into, but they'd still backed it, but and it became the big hit. It became the most successful property. Let's look at Disney now, though. The the film big film news of the week is yeah. That, okay, so Thor, Love and Thunder, Sydney. Which yeah, is good. that's cool. But yeah, the um, <laughs> the, Thor, the, Love and Thunder down under the all time record for the um the most money made by a studio in a single year belonged to Disney in 2016 for of the, all of 2016 making 7.61 billion dollars. Disney has now made US dollars. Disney has now made in 2019 7.67 billion dollars. And it's only And it's only July. July. They're yet to release Frozen. Frozen and the last of the current Star Wars trilogy. Oh God. They're easily going to clear 10 billion. Um and look at Disney's approach right now. It is 100% franchises and sequels. They will put out um, you know, a few original animated films and that's basically it. Um so I think yeah, it's going to take a real Sea change, um, sea change. It's going to take a real change. Things yeah. are going to have to start. People are going to have to just get sick people, of these yeah. films. And people will. I think object. it will it, it actually happen. Solo, yeah. and it will happen more and more. I think so. There's there's uh, there's a point where everything ends. Yeah. You know, there's no I mean, way that there's, that this corporate um, you, dominance, similar thing with Marvel, franchises will. Yeah last eternally people just get tired of watching recurring films and in films that yeah. each purport to be distinct well, even though they are not all distinct with Ragnarok it said no no this is Taika Waititi's different but it really wasn't at its too core, much it's the same. different and they're going to get tired of watching a film which is the this, this same beats over and over and they will go for something which is low budget which is distinct and original maybe with lesser name actors which, was, which is just like a Pirates of the Caribbean which Disney released, not expecting it to be too big. And hey, it worked. And they'll have to return to this model before long. I think so. Um, If anything, I think this change in audiences rejecting films like this is already happening. If we we look at what people are interested in, it's um, TV that's more largely driven by original content. Um, If you look at, at, there's an interesting situation going on. I spoke about Disney making you know they're easily going to clear 10 billion dollars at the box office this year completely dominating the record that they set years ago um the result of disney owning everything is that no one else is making any money 
so we're already seeing it with movies like Men in Black International just completely dying. X Men Dark Phoenix, no one saw. Well, those, apparently, those, they were just bad films. I didn't see them, but, but the reports have but, all been but terrible. But, but, but even so, there was just no Disney's interest. Movies were any better, to be honest? Yeah, oh. I, I think I think Disney's movies. No, the reviews for the Disney films have been a b- better than Men in Black I, International and X Men Dark Phoenix. I wouldn't say the, the Lion King is better than uh, X Men. Uh, no, the reviews uh, have been much stronger, and I saw the Lion King. I'm happy to discuss it separately, but there were a lot of redeeming aspects to it. Look, the, the, no. the thing, yeah, it'd be we could, it? we could close out this with your thoughts on the Lion King if you like. Gladly, but, but before then, um, I think this the Disney films are more competent. They're probably just not a flaming pile of trash like Men in Black International has been reported to be. But on a... It's like in the grand scheme of things is Avengers Endgame that much better? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's better. You you don't feel ripped off. But when, we, when we're talking in this, you know, comparing it to the 70s when Apocalypse Now is in, it's like the, the difference between Men in Black International and, and Avengers Endgame is like not that big. You but, know what I mean? But also, like, just generally the idea that there is a Phase 4 and a Slater release that's lined up till 2022. Yeah. I don't want to know what the corporate Production. studio's plan is. I'm not surprised. I, r- I remember in 20 after Avengers, they did a plan till 2019. It's know, now 2019, and it's only four. Years, it's only three years from now. Be- I yeah, know, believe, but, but trust that, that they like probably have a plan for at least 10 years. Infuses me with this I'm kind of despair where I feel like, you know, I don't want to know what you've got planned three years from well, now. Well, you can never really know what an audience is going to be into in 10 years. Mm. The world can change in big ways. Superhero movies yeah, could well, just uh, not be as yeah. engaging. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I, for, for years I was predicting that people would lose interest in Marvel after Avengers Endgame. And once again, with my <laughs> constant uh, <laughs> calling of the death of, um, of superhero movies, I've been proven wrong. But I wonder how much longer the interest can go. Well... We hope this is just a generation, right? Where I feel like the next generation might have different tastes. Yeah, that's 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 because a good point. Every generation rebels against yeah. its predecessors. So this one generation think, was basically damn all the superhero films, mom and dad, really? <laughs> you were that you were that into these movies? Yeah. No, we were not that into Ant Man two or yeah. Doctor yeah. Strange. But, but, Doctor but Strange two. Yeah, right, are, the, are the crowds going to come out for Doctor Strange two? But it's, it's the it's multiverse a, movie. Yeah, probably. But it's interesting to think about it. It is conceptually that, interesting. That, I'll give them that, that Marvel, you know, that all the Marvel movies now they're seen as, you know, uh, on streaming services at least. That instead of going for Criterion or something like that, people are now going to watch all the Marvel movies since like 2008, and all on Stan or all on like Disney Plus, you know, and that is that is a big draw. The people are selling their streaming services based on that draw card. Yeah, which is. Is sad and also wants me to like. But it it I'm watching Gilmore Girls at the moment. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, that is an actual rebellion. That is that is that, that is a true rebel right there. <laughs> Gilmore Girls, Gilmore rebel, Gilmore, rebel with the cause. Gilmore Girls and Star Trek. Yeah, Netflix. It's great. Uh, um, the Wrath of Khan. But just <laughs> one more thing on Apocalypse Now because I didn't feel like we got to. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to. Actually, there's one thing I also want to raise yeah, too. Uh, talk enough about it. How goddamn fantastic is Duval as Kilgore and that whole character? Yes, okay, let's it's so that. bizarre. It's the first really jarringly, hilariously weird thing in the film where there's this this guy who's obsessed with surfing. He wants to take he we he thinks we have to take this point despite how dangerous it is because it's so crucial that we get to yeah. surf. Now and that we've got this great surfer. <laughs> you can surf there. There's a bo- there are bombs going over the water. Now you can surf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's and, explosions and, and the in the water while guys saying, are surfing. No, no, no. The winds will do this. This is bad. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. And so there's a conversation about a heavy board versus a light it's board. It's such a succinct way at getting at like, the, the psychological destabilization. You know, but, that, but like, that it's like... like 
He's warped surfing. So I mean, good. what else am I going to do? Yeah. We're going to fight or we're going to surf? <laughs> His warp priorities about, like, you know, they're discussing the weight of the board. Is yeah. What a discussion to have than, like, other pressing issues. So yeah. What, what struck me about rewatching this, because it's one of the most famous quotes of all time. It's one of the speeches, I love a smell that palm in the morning, that you see imprinted on T-shirts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Everywhere. It's been parodied, no end. And two things struck me on a rewatch. One was when he approached the surfer and he greets him, it's in such a dad way. Yep. It's like, oh my God, I'm such a fan. It's nice to meet <laughs> you. And then the, the scene itself, it, you would think most actors would probably be inclined to deliver it with some, you know, haughty, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not like that. It's no. actually very restrained. It's tempered. And it's actually not with great confidence. He's like, he's, he's actually trying to get someone's attention yeah. as he's delivering the speech. He's not declaring it. He's yeah. saying, I love the smell of napalm. You know, you know, it's so oh, great. You, you did this and victory. I think it smells like victory. Yeah. It's really really good it's you know, really the, well considered the other line this is as much to do with the writing as it is to do with the delivery um but the other line i love from him is like someday this war is going to end yes and it's so ambiguous yeah because you're <laughs> you're waiting to and then you're waiting for the follow-up but like no that's just it he's just making the point because it, it works on the multiple levels of like there's the ambiguity like is he saying like enjoy it while you can or or oh. or is it like we can't imagine Life without this. life without this war, like this is just everything yeah. now. Yeah, oh, we've been like, oh. immersed so don't, much. Don't, in, don't say that. Yeah, we've been Let's, immersed so much in this strange reality that oh, we can't imagine living outside of it. Yellow scarf, wandering around in that gorgeous hat. And I, I love the way that the explosions go on all around him, and, and he he's, just doesn't care. Yeah, he just he does. He's just standing there like he can never be touched. Well, yeah, that, that's the line. Like, like he has this aura of being impregnable. No, nothing's ever going to hit him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This insane yeah. figure. Which Duval really grounds, converse to the absurd thing he is, and it plays. He plays it so well. He's great. Duval is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably is no, it I, the best no, 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 it's not. He's better as Tom Hagen in The Godfather. Right. He was great in The Godfather. He was even great in, as Boo Radley, even though it, I can't really compare this to Boo Radley. He was great as Boo Radley. It was his first. Was his major breakout role. Um, I do prefer him as Tom Hagen. Uh, if only for the sequence where he's informed the Don is dead and his reaction and then the threatening sequence with the um, LA uh, horse owner slash was it a talent agent movie producer it was a movie producer a movie producer yeah but no actually listening to your point I think you make a very good point about Duvall's delivery and how it subverts our expectations of very famous lines because even when we play those lines back in our heads they feel more triumphant than they actually are in the way they're delivered in the film you know, th- in the film, they're more matter-of-fact and more, you know, carefree. Mm. But, you oh, know, so when we play, play it back it's in our head, so they good. feel like these triumphant, like, you know, capstone moments. And but they're not. They're just, oh, okay, and this just happened. Yeah. It's just like he's liking the smell of coffee. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, and <laughs> his character has so much ambiguity to him because on some level you can say, like, it's so shameful to be fixating on the, these trivialities and such yes. when when look at what's happening to Vietnam and look at what's happening to your men. And, yeah. But at the same time, he also genuinely cares for his, his people. Yeah. It, it looks like yeah. he just rocked up from like a Richard Linklater set from like Dazed and Confused yeah. onto like Apocalypse Now. Right, like, yeah. You know, like, oh man, it's okay, but cool, he, it's chill. Well, on that <laughs> note, Chef really reminded me of a proto-Matthew McConaughey. But, um, <laughs> the, you know? Um, but yep, yep, I hear you. Yep. But, but Robert, yeah, um, Duval Kilgore... Um, he, maybe this this way of waging the war is able to keep his men sane. People, you know, he yeah. seems to love his men, and they seem to love him. 
Yeah. It's like, how do you respond to a crazy environment and crazy circumstances you just give in to and maintain craziness. your sanity? Yeah, you give in to the craziness. It's almost, yeah. it's almost a, like a, you know... Min- how do you maintain morale as a, as a leader? Uh, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's also interesting where, you know, this idea where everyone is so preoccupied with some kind of ulterior grand plan or what does it all mean? Mm. Where Deval is probably the only one who's just like, you know, oh, even yep. if it does mean anything or not, it doesn't really matter. In, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker and a lesser actor, he, this character could easily have just been like a, yeah. a, a takedown of, of like a caricature of, of, the, of American gung ho Can you imagine Alec Baldwin or someone of his life being cast in this? Oh. Yeah, it just would winking just... Winking at the camera. Yeah, it would be a winking at the camera and it would just be like, look at the evil American military man. Whereas, you know, like you can have the elements of critique without just creating a two-dimensional mm. figure. Uh, you can Kilgore is, is just so interesting. Oh, he's and and he works. He works as a character who I'm glad was not expanded throughout the rest of the film. It was for night. Yeah, he didn't wear out his welcome. No, it was it was very well done. Um, another film uh, aspect of the movie that I'm actually really split on is the location. Now, v- films about Viet- the Vietnam conflict are filmed all over the world in many different countries. This one was filmed in the Philippines. Um, I've spent time in Vietnam and. It doesn't really look like Vietnam. This isn't a big problem for me because I appreciate that logistical constraints, they chose to film it here. It does evoke the image of Vietnam. And mm. more importantly, it has a consistent aesthetic, which is more you can, than you can say for a lot of Vietnam films, including Platoon. Um, Born on the Fourth of July did it very well. And I would say that in spite of not being as true to life as it could have been, I'm happy with the choice of location hmm. and the way in where it was filmed. Well, um, there's an interesting bit of trivia that a uh, couple have mentioned in the Q&A about, you might know this already, but why he chose the Philippines. Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of, of Defense, absolutely refused uh, them access to any U.S. military equipment. So they needed right. to film somewhere <laughs> where they could have access to <laughs> U.S. military stuff. Okay. And the Filipino, you know... Uh, tyrannical government of the time agreed to you know basically carte blanche it's, it's just you know we're wow. fighting a war at the moment so occasionally sometimes in some of those shots of the helicopters leaving it's like no actually we need this right now for a battle so can we film you flying away yes yeah. yes you can yeah <laughs> <laughs> the power of editing yeah but um oh. yeah that that's why it was shot in the philippines it's okay. like somewhere that's close enough to vietnam while also providing the benefit of we can have authentic U.S. military equipment. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that is that is Apocalypse Now. The final cut is in cinemas now, and it's coming to IMAX in Melbourne in a few weeks. So that's a good reason to go. I hate you, Melbourne. Uh, was, we won't. Be, Thomas might be in Melbourne too. But uh, at any rate, Apocalypse Redux, the original theatrical version, is available on stream services. And, and coming soon to 4K Blu-ray in a, an edition with all three cuts of the film. Um, should you talk Lion King? Yeah, yeah. Let's hear your let's thoughts. Do, let's do, let's do the Lion King because in the Hindi version, it's voiced by the one and only Shah Rukh Khan. That was the only reason I would watch it. And his son is voicing Who does he play? Mufasa. He, he's playing he Mufasa. Mufasa. Okay. And he's going to be here in Melbourne. So that's, that's why pr- I'm That's going. pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's, why, pretty I'm, that's great. why I'm going to Melbourne. But yeah, so sucks to be all you guys. So the Lion King. Um, I'm going to give what I call a good, bad and the ugly review which I enjoy giving for there some is, movies. There is a good. There's a good, there's a bad, and there's an ugly. Okay. So I'm, I think, as Chris alluded to last week, I'm just fascinated by the existence of this film, the idea that 
we're going to create a photorealistic version. It is an animation. I will never call it a live-action movie. It is animated, yeah. It is animated. There's an animated remake. It's clever clever marketing has got people calling it a live-action remake, but that's all it is, marketing. Um, I'll, so I'll start with what I like that's good about it. Um, some of the casting, Donald Glover and um, the J.D. McCrae is young... So the fellow who played young Simba in the new I one. I think it is Jane McRae. Yeah, yeah. He's, they're both very good, much better than Matthew Broderick and the fellow who played, I think it's Randy on Home Improvement. How dare you? Oh, he wasn't that great. I mean, Glover, Glover handles it much better. Um, there is a decent cast, as has been widely publicized. The guys who play Timon and Puma, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen are great. They riff a lot. Um, so the improv, that when the film does depart from the original script and do new things, a lot of that is Timon and Pumbaa related. It is good and it is interesting and it's actually fun to watch because we don't know every line as soon as it is coming. Um, I will be, I should say, I will be spoiling this film What's the Lion King? You, Not you, in you, front you, of the kid. You know, <laughs> you know, well, actually, they, 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 they do do a fun riff on that line, and yeah, it actually okay. re- works really well. I'm um, not sure if it's enough for me to go spend my money, but it's okay. Look, the more differences from the original, the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those are the bits that work. The Some of the animation is just gorgeous to watch. I say this in the sequences where... There's, there's three types of animated sequences in this film. One is where it is the just the nature. One is where it is animals just being animals. And one, the third where it is animals talking. When it's just nature, it's a waste of time because I can just go back to Africa or look at my pictures growing up in Africa and I'd rather just see that or Google Africa and that would be much better. The sequences where... Th- Africa. Okay. The sequences where the lions are talking, sometimes oh, the animals talking with Timon and Pumbaa it usually works... Um, I'll get into the the bad bit, but that is the, some of the parts that are distracting. The bits that were good were the bits where the lions or the animals were just shown wandering around the plains. Um, the sequence in the gorge was stunning; was absolutely stunning. As was the bit where Mufasa was climbing up the mountain. It actually looks much more like a lion than uh, Mufasa did in the original version. I've seen that clip where Mufasa is falling. It, it's it's amazing. Like it's a, it's amazingly shot. The gorge sequence is incredible. Um, the any bit with Rafiki is really, really good and really well captured. Okay. Um, Timon and Pumbaa, as I yeah, said. Yeah, because I, I guess, you know, realistic baboon would be interesting. Mandrel. Mandrel. It's Mandrel. But yes. Right. Uh, he did, did not know that. <laughs> but he, it, it's, it's done very well. Um, the bad. So as I did just allude to, the sequences where you're looking at pe- the talking, they don't emote as they should. Not like, as I referenced last week, Bagheera in the Jungle Book, other films. The technology exists to make them look relatively lifelike, but in attempts to make them so animal-like, they don't emote as well as they should. And um, Hakuna, Hakuna Matata is kind of distracting. Can you feel the love tonight is really bad for that reason? Wait, so if the songs don't work, which is half, like, 50% of the reason why The Lion King exists to begin with yeah a well, lot the of singers the just aren't as good right the singers some of them are the, the thing is Beyonce is a really good singer as is Donald Glover but I think as we were talking about before the show started they have <coughs> such different styles and Beyonce harmonizes in every lyric and no one tells Beyonce not to harmonize so it's just really <laughs> consistent with their vocal approaches to Can You Feel the Love Tonight I've heard the recording during the day and right. it's so distracting I've heard the recording and it sounds like she's drowning him out yeah she is like massive vocal theatrics versus the kind of soft because yeah. Donald Glover is not that strong a singer. No, he's, he's saying I can see what's happening. Uh, so, so he's saying there's so many things to tell, and she's going it's like um, this epic, epic. Like we won't, we won't attempt to yeah, well, impersonate well, it because well, we can't. We're not going to tell Beyonce <laughs> um, how to sing. Yeah, well, Destiny's lion. I, I miss, I miss Destiny's child. God, mm-hmm. and 
Uh, also, in terms of the voice actors, I've got to say, James Jones is the only returning voice cast member, and it's a sort of a Rogue One situation where he's returning to a character so many years later, his voice isn't the same, and oh, it isn't. And okay. he, and I feel he's playing. He sounds older, and that's not a problem. But when he played Mufasa, he managed to inject it with the the voice acting for Mufasa in the Lion Four version of Lion King. It was very much not just. Imparting that Mufasa was a powerful figure. Mufasa was a powerful figure in his prime and could emote and be so emphatically powerful. Um, he's but also very kind. I mean, uh, you know, those registers were interesting because when he would uh, be soft, I think it was the diversity in that was fantastic to listen to. And that's in this version too, except it's not nearly as emphatic. I don't, he can't manage as emphatic tones and notes as he did once and I think it worked much better in 94 original where just like the lines like turn around Zazu just which he managed so oh, as well God. and you are my son just things like that which he managed to emote oh, with much man. greater emphasis I, I, I and degree. How, how mean they are to Zazu I thought that's like bad parenting it's like this it's just it adds <laughs> yeah. to the, the thing of and like the monarchy being just to be like you know, where the monarchy my, my subjects I'm going to pounce on you whether you like it or not even though Zazu is, is just yeah, he's stuck up, but he's he's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah but even, like even, it's it's just like yeah. Zazu doesn't emote in this. Yeah. If anything, John it's, Oliver is not teaching, nearly as good as Rowan Atkinson. I, from hearing the music recordings, I would, yeah definitely agree. But Matt, it's like man, Mufasa, you're teaching your son to be a little dick well, by t- well, <laughs> teaching well, him to <laughs> pounce on Zazu. Yeah, but, but the thing is like, God. like but young but Simba pouncing was. Yeah. what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the young Simba was like when he's like when I get to be king, I'm not gonna do this. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a little know, like, little shit. Okay, twat. And this is, and <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's, 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 he's a little shit. And this is yeah. where we get to the ugly of the film. And it's it specifically regards the two of the musical sequences which are so badly handled. The first of which is I just can't wait to be king. In the first, in the original, there's amazing color changes yeah. as soon as you jump into the music. And in this, the animation is not of that. All the animals. Bouncing it's like a on Bugsy Berkeley kind yeah, of. Yeah, it's a, it's a ridiculously upbeat musical. And all they're doing is like running through water. With flamingos running about, and oh, like I'm just watching a bit of Animal Planet, and I could just as well be watching that well, with the Lion King playing the, in the background. The issue with sticking so close, like featuring the exact same song, is that you invite comparisons. This film can never just stand on its own. Yeah. It's a film that's such a part of so many people's childhoods, and then you're sticking so close, but then deviating in just yeah. a few ways. But when, but when the lions are fighting on the Pride Rock at the end, that's great. But when they're forced to sing. Oh, God. It's, it's, you're just watching lines that just kind of hang out. I could see that actually being an improvement because the fight between Scar and Simbo in the original was actually yeah. pretty bad. Yeah, it, was it, pretty it, bad. it was an improvement. That was one of the one of the improvements. Okay. Um, I, I guess, yeah, real lines fighting could be like more liney. Oh, so I've, I've got to note, that whole sequence is actually managed exceptionally well. Um, it always bothered me, as, even as a kid, where he says, I killed Mufasa, and Simba just leaps up onto Pride Rock, whereas in this one, he grabs hold of Scar's cheek and then Scar and Pain lurches back, which pulls Simba back up to the rock, which makes a lot more sense. There's a few touches that they actually do improve upon. There's a reference to Beauty and the Beast, which is absolutely hilarious. But the worst thing about this film by far... Okay, the the I don't think it's my favourite song. Okay. We'll debate this last week. Be, Be Prepared, prepared is this. a masterpiece. Yeah, It's not in this movie. It's really for he doesn't sing. He does a bit of song speech. He's good. He plays a much more menacing version of Scar, but with none of the fun and playfulness that Jeremy Irons had. And the fact that it's not here, even even in the absence of the brilliant Be Prepared song from the original, if that never existed, the scene where he 
seeing speaks be prepared and rallies the hyenas is objectively bad he's just jumping between a couple of rocks and the hyenas gathering and he's just saying be prepared you're not getting any idea of his motivation it's lax it's boring it's dull you and, just broke my heart and, again sorry and the last thing it's on this, okay. yeah, I'm sorry, it's, it's on this movie. So if, if, if it is your favorite thing about this film, then it's not worth seeing. But the other thing about um, this film that absolutely, absolutely lacks, I'm not sure if we discussed it last week or if we discussed it off the show, but um, Scar is, I think, inarguably in my view, one of the world's most famous queer cinematic villains. And that depiction, a very more than implicit depiction by Irons, lends the film a lot of nuance. It lends it many other interesting dimensions. It is completely absent from this movie, and I think the film is lesser for it. I think it's an unfortunate uh, detraction and thing that they shouldn't have taken away from the from the original the story. The question is: Is Scar really truly meant to be queer, or is it just you know, be you must be strong and masculine, and Scar is bad because he's effeminate? Um, I would. I think it's taking both views, but I would say that it is. Well, Scar is a, shows he, 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 no is a, he is, he is very much a queer dialogue. figure. It is it is almost explicit, especially in the original film, especially in the dialogue where he's like, you know, I have no interest in making any of you queen, or like, you know, so don't, you know, so it's almost as if he's more concerned about other things. Oh, they add in the subplot here about how uh, Sarabi, Sarabi rejected him, and how right. she should be his queen now, oh and God. it's just. just it, 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 sorry, the, the Bentham grinds to well, halt during this whole that's, sequence. That's something that was chopped from the original film. Yeah. He apparently tried to make Nala his mate, and that's how she ends up where in the wildlands where Timon and Pumbaa are because she was exiled. It's in the musical, isn't it? It's in the musical, I believe, yeah. as well. It works in the musical, I think. Cause it, and, and here, the, here, the musical and was written by the one of the directors and one of the writers of the, fi- of the original film. <laughs> so maybe it, they're just more in tune with the material. Yeah. You know, and th- here they had this whole sequence about how Nala. W- the motivation and showing Nala running away from Pride Rock, but I actually liked the surprise her rocky up and almost yeah. wrecking Pumba. That was fun. Yeah, was I, fun. I agree. It was a nice surprise. But and also and it, it's, you can just infer. You don't, you don't need to be given the... Immediately. It's like, Nala? Yeah. Nala? Simba? Yeah, because you yeah. haven't seen the older version of Nala yet. Mm. And you can just in, infer why she's there. It doesn't yeah, need yeah. to be explicit. It's obvious. Like, I'm hunting for food. Yeah. Fair enough. Especially when later on you see there's no... You know, people saying there's no food in Pride Rock. You can put two and two together. Like, so much of the beauty of Scar or whatever, like the implicit beauty of Scar works because of Jeremy Irons' voice. You and won't get a sniff without me. Yeah, My voice is gone now, but sorry. But, not, not just, <laughs> but, but actually, not just the menacing part. I, th- I think part of the fun that Jeremy Irons has with Scar is he's just so playful with it. Look, Sars, like, you made me lose my lunch. You know, and, and that sarcasticness of it is just makes it him probably one of the most fun Disney villains even though he's probably one of the few who gets to kill a major character which not a lot of Disney villains get to do so like you know he gets to have his scar and eat it too yeah oh so the whole scarring thing scar shorthand for bad guy oh so in this movie bad um, oh God! Yeah, uh, it's it's really annoying, and they sh- they shouldn't have it in modern cinema aimed at children, especially. Um, two quick final points in this: um, the hyenas, um, the there's no Whoopi Goldberg, which is bad because Whoopi Goldberg is great, and the dynamic of the three hyenas aren't there. They give them a lot of more dialogue and try to have this like pithy Timon, and, even Timon and Pumbaa esque veering on that 
um, dynamic and it just doesn't work. It's entirely, it's one of the most original aspects of the film, but it's one of the ones that just falls flat. And you know what, but what I did like about that is the scenes where they're chasing them through the elephant graveyard. It's actually almost a horror scene because they're going, the lines go underground and they're jumping in all these holes trying to bite at them. And that scene was really good. And that wasn't in the original. And I appreciate it. How, how did you find in general the, the photorealism? I found it distracting when they try to emulate what was already so well managed in the original. I think the idea of having whole stretches of photorealistic but fake nature just to be useless. Why have this mm. when it's when the, the only purpose would be to have animals do things you couldn't otherwise have them do? The fight sequences, like I've watched those, you know, nature documentaries, I've seen lions fight. I appreciate that they had uh, some of these sequences in there because they allowed for intimate access that you wouldn't normally get because, fair enough, real-life cameramen want to stand a little further back. And when they, when, and when they, and when they let the characters, like Timon and Pumbaa, um, when, they, when they were a little more relaxed with how their faces could move, it was good. But when they were stringent in, let's see if we can do this, it was distracting and it was bad and it's really awkward. And I highlight the Can You Feel the Love Tonight sequence and the Hakuna Matata sequence to that effect. I, I love that in the original you had Mufasa and Simba grow up to be like ginger lions. I think it's great for representation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I never thought about that. They're gin- oh my God, they're gingers. I know. <laughs> Only a ginger. Anyway. Um, oh, so one <laughs> weird change, which was really elegant and I liked uh, we ref- we compared the Lion King last week to the Prince of Egypt, and the Prince of Egypt has that great scene with um, the burning bush where you can hear God come through the flames and speak to Moses. The equ- there's the semi equivalent sequence in this way is looking up at the sky and you can see Mufasa in the clouds, but in this movie you don't see the outline of Mufasa, you just see the clouds, and it's not the similar to how the scene was staged at the Prince of Egypt. And I think it was actually really su- su- it was sublimely done. It was beautiful to watch, and it was a point of difference, which is a surprising point of difference because you could have easily have made Mufasa come out of the clouds. But as I said before, it was just an elegant moment in the film that didn't always pursue elegance by trying to just regurgitate so much that came before. Yeah, Cool. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. that's The Lion King. It is also in cinemas now and will be in cinemas for Forever. a very long time. <coughs> but also, you know what? You know what works? It's such a primeval film on so many levels it's eternally relatable you can put it in any cultural context and translate it and like yep we, we get what's going but on but no here. but part of my essential rebellious struggle with this is that there's going to be a whole new generation of people they're going to be introduced to the Lion King through this version and not through the 94 version I hope version. not I, no, don't, I think no, there will be some for there sure will be, there, will, there be. will be some yeah. but I don't think they'll love it like our generation loved the exactly, original exactly because no. they, they just don't know and even with Aladdin Look, I mean, you know. largely because it's not about cartoons kids love cartoons yeah this is not a simple cartoon simple as that well, this, is, this is an animation it's not a cartoon yeah no, not just cartoons I think we like as supposedly adults I don't know if I'm an adult yet I also love Definitely cartoons not. yeah I think you know it's SWAT cats I'd still watch it if it came on Jetsons I'd still watch it Jetsons. Oh, the Jetsons. Flintstones. The Jetsons hasn't aged well. Neither is the Flintstones. I don't think. I know, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's not about being woke or being. So I'm, I'm, th- I'm not talking about wokeness at all. I'm I talking know, about in terms generally. of the just the just some of the stories and. I I thought some of the that's animation. how physics worked. If I ran f- quickly enough, I could basically make run a car. And used to have those cars, you know, as a kid, where basically 
you know, you could have your feet dangling and you started running and the car would, you know, work. But anyway. Oh, we're going to talk about the Flintstones. Wow. These are all the Vegas on this weekend. God help us. So Lion King is in cinemas now. Such a terrible movie. It's, they're, they're, they're all bad adaptations. Uh, Apocalypse Now, the final cut, is in limited release? Yeah, there'll be. There'll, I think there'll be very few screenings after this week, but keep an eye out for them. The main ones will be the IMAX release. But it, it'll be on, it'll, it's on Blu-ray, um, I believe either next month or in september i think it's i think it's in august actually that the blu-ray comes out so cinemas now yeah cinemas now yeah uh, so this 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 is the end this will be this has been glenn falkenstein <laughs> chris evans and right Nero. have a wonderful week drown yourself keep in on movies. rocking in the free world enjoy movies. Meow, meow, meow. don't enjoy the lion king enjoy good the night. original good night bye bye